past three days, uh, I was in Atlanta, and get this, I was there for a meeting with representatives from all of the presbytery, a number of the pres, 60 of the 80 presbyteries that are part of the Presbyterian Church in America. That's the denomination that I'm ordained in, that this church is being uh, planted out of. And we were reviewing presbytery minutes from every presbytery in the country. Now, can you think of anything more exciting and interesting that you would want to be involved with? I, I kind of got roped into it. I didn't know that it was a full separate trip to Atlanta that required being there for three days. But I, I ended up enjoying it because, because I, it, I saw how... Um, how much work it takes for the church to remain united. You know, it's easy just to send everybody out and say, well, you, you take care of yourself and your congregation and whatever you want to teach, you go ahead and teach. But it's hard, it's hard to say, hey, we're together on this and teaching the same thing, that we are united as a church. And that's why we're a part of the Presbyterian church, is because we are working together in real Unity. We don't just say, yeah, we're together and then never meet as a church family. And so it's interesting, this passage from Philippians, I went back and forth on which passage I was going to preach from. I ended up choosing this passage from Philippians 4, verses 4 to 7. And Paul's main concerns for this church in Philippi are that, one, they would experience unity, and two, that they would be freed from their fears. They would experience unity and that they would be freed from their fears. Let me read this familiar passage, Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, and then we'll look at what it means. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God will stand forever. Father, would you now... Teach us to trust you. Teach us why we should trust you and help us to overcome our fears, our anxieties. May the meditations of all of our hearts and the words of my mouth now be pleasing and honoring in your sight and equipping and strengthening for us as your people. In Jesus' name, amen. The question is, how will God provide for you, for me, for all of us? And the answer is here, but we really have to look at the full of this letter to Philippian, to the Church of Philippi to, to understand better. You know, President Franklin Roosevelt, when he took office, the country was in the midst of a Great Depression, and many people were asking, how will God provide for my needs, my food, my house, my um, clothes, my kids? He made the famous comment, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. 
I think it's easy to come to this passage and say, well, if we would just present our request to God and rejoice that our, our fears and anxieties would just fall away. And that, of course, is an oversimplified answer. There is something of a formula that God gives us in his word on how we can release our anxiety or be released from our fears, find freedom from fear and anxiety, but it's not just found in a couple of verses. In fact, if you have ever found yourself quoting these verses and practicing it and, and not thinking about the, the broader kind of implications of this, the broader uh, argument that Paul gives, and I think you, like me, or like, like I, oftentimes just run up to places where our anxiety pops back up, our fears, we wonder how God is going to provide for our next meal, maybe some of us, some of us for uh, a place to live tomorrow, next month, next year, how we'll pay particular bills or how we'll pay for children's college or the bills from our children's college or retire someday, whatever it is. I mean, you, you feel this, this fear, this anxiety come up for, for not knowing how how you're going to do some of those things. Maybe it's something else for you. I don't know what it is, but you, you feel this fear and anxiety. So the question for today, how will, how will God provide? And the, the answer comes from Paul as he describes, first, what Christ has done for us, and then second, us following not only Christ's example, but Paul's example. In three areas in particular, I see. First, in his humility. Second, in his suffering. And third, in his generosity. Or if you want to, you can even have an alliteration. What are the things that cause us problems, cause our anxiety, and our pride? It's our protection and our provision. And our pride gets in the way of our humility or wages war against our humility. Our protection makes us leery of entering into any kind of suffering. And our provisions limit our, our generosity oftentimes. Let's start with the first one. Humility. Pride stands in the way of our humility. Verse 5, and what we just read. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Now this word, I'm not quite sure why the ESV translators used reasonableness. It, it sounds like you're a little bit of a, a Vulcan in, and isn't that what Spock was? A Vulcan in being logical. Let your, let your logic be known to everyone that they would they would appreciate how consistent you are in all of your thinking. But if you have another translation, you know that the, the King James Version, if you have that, doesn't say reasonableness. It says, let your moderation be known to everybody. If you have the NIV, ver- the, the NIV version, it says, let your gentleness be known to everyone. And if you have the New American Standard, you know that it says, let your forbearing spirit be known to everyone. And I think that 
the, the problem with translating a word like this is that it, it's, it's very broad in its meaning, but it really is getting back to, to Christ's humility that he demonstrated. Paul speaks of this back in chapter 2. Go back with me in chapter 2 here, verse 5. When he speaks of Christ, he says this, have, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he was God himself is what this means, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to hold on to and not let go of is what this means. But, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. What we're going to say today, what I'm going to suggest in even being uh, humble or, or willing to endure suffering or being generous it has to begin with Christ's example of his humility. It's not just his example, it's his humility that has saved us. It's, it's fuel that, that moves us. Because our ultimate fear, the fear that surpasses all other fears, is always the fear of death. Now, if you're in your 20s, Maybe your teens, you probably don't think about death too much. You don't think, oh, I'll never die. I, I, I mean, I acknowledge it, but I don't, I don't, I, I'm not even thinking about that. I don't, I'm not afraid of that. What are you talking about, Pastor? But that's only because you're, you're not thinking about it. If you sat down and thought about it for a while, you would be afraid of it. If you're in your 30s, your 40s, you're starting to think a little bit more about it. 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. You know that there's a fear that comes from death. Is it the end? Is it a separation from something? What, what does it have in store for us? If we know what the Bible teaches, it's that sin has separated us from God. And so death has entered in in such a way that if we, if we have nothing else to reconcile us with God, then death means eternal separation from God. Eternally being away from all of his provision, all of his protection, all of his strength and power over everything. Can you imagine a place like that where there's none of God's provision, none of his protection, none of his strength? This is what the Bible calls hell. And if that's where you're headed, then... And that should be your greatest fear in all of life. But, but the Bible says that Jesus not only humbled himself taking the form of a human being, but humbled himself all the way to the point of dying a death, experiencing separation from God that we all deserve because of our sin. He didn't sin, and yet he died that death, experiencing separation from God, so that we wouldn't have to experience that separation from God ever. This is the, the fuel. The fuel to, to enable us to set aside our pride and to take a position like Jesus took of humility. This is why right before what I just read about Jesus, Paul said, do nothing from rivalry or conceit 
but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Because one of the things that was going on with the Philippian church was that there was rivalry. There was dissension. There was a disunity where Paul wanted there to be unity. Even right before what I read back in chapter 4, we read of two women. I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. They made it into Paul's letter. They made it into the Bible because their fight was so bad. Right? How, how many people, where do you experience disunity in your life? Is it with other people in the church? Is it with other people in your family? Is it with other people you know, that you work with, wherever it is? If they are in the Lord, work to find this unity. And here's the secret to finding that unity. It's in you taking the position of humility to count their needs more important than your own. If you want to be free from fear and anxiety, the answer is in taking the position of a servant like Christ did. Taking a position of humility, being willing to say, even though I think I deserve something better, I am going to put myself in a position of humility to love this other person like they don't deserve, or at least I don't think they deserve. Let me give you a couple of examples. A lot of us think that we will alleviate our fear of anxiety, fear and anxiety by making more money or attaining a higher position in life or being in control of more things. But the answer is not in pursuing a higher position of influence and power, guarding your reputation. The answer is actually, like Christ did, taking the form of a servant of others. Now this is counterintuitive, the inside-outside craziness of the logic of the gospel. It's not reasonable at all when it comes to this kind of thinking. Right? It's the way of Christ which is completely opposite, completely illogical when it comes to what, what we would consider um, reasonable thinking in the world. I mean, it's the type of thing that says, look, if you are in a position of leadership in your work, and it's not bad to be in a position of leadership, it's not bad to attain these things, then view yourself as a servant of the people you're leading. You have been put there and trusted to serve those people and watch out for their well-being. At the same time, if you are in a position of service with no one reporting to you but working for somebody else, serve with joy that the Lord has given you this responsibility. Because it also says in Scripture, when Jesus was speaking to his disciples, when he preached the sermon on the Mount back in Matthew chapter 5 that, that blessed are the poor for theirs is the kingdom of heaven but he didn't stop there he says blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth the language of the scripture is very clear that if we're in positions of service now we will be exalted later but it's equally as clear that if we're in positions of power now watch out if we're in positions of comfort now, watch out because you may be drawn low if you don't take this position of service. It seems completely counterintuitive. 
that we would seek to serve other people and that would free us somehow from our anxiety and fear. That's the, that's the first place that Paul says, find freedom from fear and anxiety in our, in our humility. The second place is in suffering. Now let me tell you a little bit about Paul's story here. Paul had planted the church in Philippi that he's writing to. In fact, it was the first church that we have record of that he planted. Go back and look at Acts 16. And later he traveled to a number of places, planted a number of churches. And eventually he was arrested in Jerusalem for stirring things up. And he was taken to Caesarea, which was just a little bit west of Jerusalem. And there he sat in a prison for, for about three years. And after that time, he was taken by ship to Rome, where he continued to be in a prison. And so he writes this letter from a prison. We don't know if he was in Caesarea or if he was in Rome, to this church that he loved in Philippi. And he says this back in chapter 1, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, brothers and sisters is really what the Greek implies there that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, speaking specifically about his imprisonment, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are now much more bold to speak the word Without fear. Now, this is kind of interesting because did you notice? Did you notice that Paul, at the end of the passage we're looking at today, verse 7, 4 7, he said, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will what? Will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. See, he's sitting in a prison cell. And he's looking at the guards. Some of the time he was sitting in house arrest, but he still had a guard there. And he's looking at the guard. And he says, you think that I'm in a bad place here. And you're right, it is. It's not where I want to be. But this guard in front of me is actually serving to advance the gospel. What, what the devil has intended for evil purposes, to lock me up and to shut me up, God is turning around to use for his good purposes. It served to advance the gospel even more. And look, if you are experiencing, I'm, t- I'm going to tell you a way that likewise your heart and your mind, your thoughts and your passions will be guarded against fear and anxiety. Right? And here's the example. That Christ suffered for you on your behalf when you didn't deserve it. And likewise, I'm suffering for you and for others. 
And God's also called you to suffer for others. Now, this is tricky. Because what I'm not saying is go and find some suffering. Go and find somebody to persecute you in the name of Jesus. And this sounds kind of funny, but this is a message that gets preached an awful lot. Right? If, if you're not offending somebody, then you're not doing that. Go offend somebody so that your neighbor will dislike you because of the gospel. It's not, it's not saying that at all. It's not saying go suffer. It's saying that if suffering comes to you, when suffering comes to you, do it because you know that you're serving other people. Do it because you know that God is in control of this. You even know that God will somehow turn it around. Now, it may not be as obvious as what Paul's turnaround was. You know, Paul could say, look, I know that people are getting more bold because of my suffering. I know the gospel is going out. Oftentimes we don't see the direct results of this. But what God's saying is that when suffering comes, it's going to be used for some other purpose. God will turn it around and use it. The best example of this I've seen is in my mentor, Dick Kaufman, who started the Harbor Movement. Anytime you see him, and you've seen him, he's worshiped with us, you know he walks in a walker, he has a disease a degenerative disease, neurological disease called ataxia. Not only that, but two years ago, he also suffered through prostate cancer as he was still experiencing the ataxia. And the comment that he always makes, no matter if he's in better health or in worse health, is that Jesus has been turning the tables on this evil. Jesus has been doing something through my suffering Praise God. I rejoice in my suffering because in my weakness, Jesus is shown to be strong. He gave the example one time even of his grandson who has Down syndrome and hemophilia. This is a bad combination because people with Down syndrome oftentimes need to have surgeries. And so to have hemophilia is a difficult place because your blood doesn't clot and you can't heal from surgeries. If you've ever been around somebody with Down syndrome, you know that they may not be able to process everything. They don't have the intellect, but they're very loving, very forgiving, very long-suffering with people. And he says of his son, his grandson, who's now, I think, five or six, but even when he was two or three, he said his grandson was an influencer of people because even in his weakness, in his frailty, because of his gentleness, because of his humility, because of the way... He would unconditionally love people. He was a leader and he was influencing people. See how God turns the tables on these places of suffering. Now, I want to tell you one other story that I just heard this past week that was just a a powerful story. It was a story about a a husband and and wife who are in a friend's congregation. I won't even tell you where. It's nowhere near here. And the wife was... The wife came to the pastor and the marriage was, was in trouble and, and she said, Pastor, I don't want to leave my husband, but I, I mean, I can't, I can't do anything. He just, he just ignores me. And, and she said, but I've decided that I'm going to just love him like I've never loved him before. He's, he's mean to me. He's, he, he doesn't pay attention to me. 
I'm going to love him like I've never seen, like I've never tried before, regardless. And and so she committed to it, and she started just loving him. And her husband started to open up to her, to her again. And then eventually, one day she got a call from a woman that her husband had been having an affair with, saying, I just want you to know that your husband is leaving me because you've been loving him so well, and he wants to be with you again. Now, this wasn't the end of it. I mean, it caused all... It was a firestorm after that, right? She said she she knew in her mind that, that her husband was probably having an affair, but when the thing actually hit it, it caused a, a mess. It was it was difficult. But what I want you to see is is how God I and I don't know the end of the story, I mean this is still fairly recently. But that love actually brought the husband back to her. She had to suffer through a lot. How her humility and suffering was used to turn the tables on this, this bad situation. We don't have to run after suffering. Suffering will come to us. Whether it's persecution, whether it's physical suffering, we will experience it. But know that God has something better out of it. Endure suffering, not just for yourself, but for other people. Notice that Christ's suffering was for other people. Paul's suffering was for, for other people. In fact, Paul tells us in chapter 3 here that he, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I mean, he was doing everything right. He was righteous. A lot of times we think, man, what have I done, God, that I experienced this kind of suffering? And Paul says, look, I did nothing, and yet now I experience this suffering, not because I deserve the suffering, but on your behalf. Suffer for other people, and it will turn around. It will relieve your fear and anxiety. This leads us to our last point about our generosity. About Jesus' generosity and how we are so filled with fear about our provision. And this is the thing that that we think about most when we think about fear and anxiety. What, how is God going to provide for my needs? Let me read for you again. Chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. Let me start back with 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have received your concern You have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now notice especially these next two verses. Yet... It was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except 
you only. Interesting parallel passage back in First Corinthians, Second Second Corinthians, chapter eight. Second Corinthians, chapter eight. You can turn there if you want to. Verses one to three. Paul says, also Paul writing, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will. Again, this is part of that counterintuitive, inside, outside truth of the gospel, that if you want to be freed from your anxiety about how God will provide for your life, don't add to your bank account, give away to others. Did you notice in Oh, you didn't notice. I didn't read on through there. Verse 17, back in chapter 4. He said, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Paul wasn't asking him for money, just for his own well-being. He knew that God would provide. It wouldn't have been wrong for him to. Probably sometimes he did. He did in some sense ask them now, But what he was saying was that your gift was not for my benefit. Your gift was for your own benefit. Your gift is to your credit. And not in a way that God just says, oh, he gave this, that's good. But in a way that shows that the fruit... Catch that, he uses the name. That the fruit of God's grace being extended to you, God's generation, generosity being extended to you, is now bearing fruit that you are giving to other people and you experience a new kind of peace, a release of freedom from the fear and the anxiety that you felt. It's not just money. It's your time that you give to certain things. It's your energy, your effort. It's the... It's the relational capital that you spend in relationships that may be difficult. That you know you're not going to get anything back from. But God says, look, this is to your credit. You're bearing fruit. You're experiencing my grace. You are even experiencing a freedom from from fear and anxiety when you give generously to other people. This is what Jesus has done for you. He's given generously for you. This is what I've done for you. I've given up my life of being a Pharisee, of being prosperous and endured this kind of suffering, not for my own sake, but for your sake, out of generosity. Are you experiencing this kind of freedom from fear and anxiety? Let's skip one more point that I had and just close with this. I came across an article in the Wall Street Journal. It's in there yesterday. And it was the, it was a funny piece. Sad. 
put it on Facebook today. If any of you are friends with me on Facebook, you can find it there. It was, it was by the creator of the cartoon, The Simpsons. And he was writing a commencement address that he would give if he was ever invited to do a commencement address. He wasn't invited. He said this. He said, Dear graduates, you're pampered, privileged, and oversexed. But at least your employment prospects are dim. You're pampered, privileged, and oversexed. But at least your employment prospects are dim. Maybe when difficulty, suffering, giving, even to the point where you put yourself in need. Did you notice that? Remember Macedonians, they gave even to the point where they put themselves in need. When you experience this kind of dependence upon God, when you find yourself in a place where you know, God, I need you. Like these graduates are finding themselves in a place where they've had all kind of privilege, pampering, and indulgence in various sins. And they find themselves for the first time in a place of need because they can't find a job. That's the place oftentimes where God meets us and we're mindful that God is the one who's ultimately providing for us. But but that's not the point of suffering. It's not some kind of mean-spirited parent keeping their kid from dinner in order to make a point to them, look, I'm the one who's giving you your dinner. You need to appreciate me. What God's saying is that sin, suffering, your needfulness, your pride is all all entered into your life by your own doing. You do this stuff on your own. But I'm going to provide for your every need. I am not going to make you suffer in order to draw you back to me. I'm actually providing for all of your needs and have provided for all of your needs. And I am giving you an opportunity an opportunity to enter into the type of ministry that I have done for you. Right? I am giving you an opportunity to enter into the same type of ministry, to act like the type of leader that I am for you, the type of shepherd, the type of provider, in giving you opportunities to be humble with other people when they don't deserve it. to suffer on behalf of other people when they do deserve that. And to give even to the point of it hurting you when other people are in need. Because this is a ministry that I love doing for you and for all these people. And it it is a joy. It is a blessing. And so Paul can say here, rejoice. Rejoice in the name in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. He says in chapter 4, verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. It says back in chapter 1, verse 18, yes, I will rejoice. He talks over and over about rejoicing when he is in prison 
and has given his life and probably will give up his life. He even acknowledges that he probably will die in this letter. He says, but I rejoice at the opportunity to love and serve you because Jesus has done this love and service for me. I wonder how much joy and freedom from fear and anxiety we would experience if we poured out our lives in sacrifice for others like Paul has poured out his life for us and like Jesus had poured out his life for Paul and for all of us. Let's pray. Father, surely these are difficult decisions to make where we put ourselves in positions that are uncomfortable and seem like they would be full of anxiety in and of themselves. Will you help us to trust that you are good and good on your word and your promises? And help us to show generosity to endure suffering for others and to be humble because Jesus has done that for us. Amen. Amen.